0: Welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast breaking down the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. We are a little over halfway through Season 1, and we are gathered here around a very fancy and very special stone table to talk about Episode 5, titled Partings. We are joined today by the High King of the Elves himself, Gil Gallad, a.k.a. Benjamin Walker, who we're very excited to have back. He'll be joining us later to break down this episode in a bit. But first, I'm your host Devin Cogan, and I am joined as always by my favorite traveling companion, Christian Holleb. Christian, how's it going?
1: Good, Devin. It's a, a beautiful fall day here in New York City today. The weather is nice and crisp. Um, I don't drink coffee, but people who are, I'm sure, are ordering their pumpkin spice lattes. I'm listening to Nico Case and thinking about when I'm going to rewatch Over the Garden Wall. Yeah, fall is a very Tolkieny season. I feel like so definitely in the mood to talk about. Ah, uh, the latest episode of Rings of Power.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's start with a very autumnal vibe. We're going to mm-hmm. head to Linden, which is very, very. It's got a very kind of cozy fall vibe. Lots of yellow leaves and
1: perhaps a little too autumnal, uh, as far as the king is concerned.
0: I was going to say I mean the this is definitely not the spring of the of the kingdom of the elves. Um you know there's there's a lot to unpack this episode. A lot going on all across Middle-earth. Um but we're going to start in Linden because there's there's some interesting things happening uh in this episode we learn a little bit more about kind of what the elves are up to and kind of what's going on in Gilgalad's head. He's kind of a he's a very stoic king. He doesn't tell everyone everything and we we learn a little bit about kind of his motivations here. We learn that he Um, And Celebrimbor have sort of sent Elrond on a little bit of an errand without telling him what's going on. We learn that they are searching for an ore that we know now as Mithril. And he and Celebrimbor believe that it will help stave off decay and uh, preserve the power of the elves, which is a really interesting kind of twist and not something I was really expecting. Christian, what Mm -hmm. did you make of this whole, you know, kind of reveal about what's going on with the elves and the dwarves?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's definitely very strange to kind of hear some Silmarillion karaoke to go along with all <laughs> the actual Silmarillion references we've had. You know, the story that gil tells Elrond in this episode about the origins of Mithril, as he and Celebrimbor understand it, their theory is that there was a battle over one of the three Silmarils between a nameless elf warrior and a big old Balrog. And that battle caused the light of the Silmaril to seep into the earth and create this vein of Mithril that's in Khazad-dûm. And Gilgalad thinks that that is uh, the key to preserving elf longevity and dominion. You know, and what's weird about this story is that it sounds similar to things that are in the Silmarillion, but it's not in the Silmarillion. One of the ways you know is that the elf warrior has no name. Because yeah. everybody has a freaking name in Tolkien <laughs> and in the Silmarillion.
0: Usually they have like nine names. Yeah.
1: Right. And there's also, it's also a funny thing of there's only one Balrog. And usually in the Silmarillion, if there's a Balrog involved, there's like five of them. Uh, so that was kind of, that was making me like turn my head a little bit. But, you know, it's presented as apocryphal. It's presented as a little vague, and so it might be the kind of thing, and, and I'll be interested, and listeners will surely be interested when we catch up with Benjamin Walker later, about maybe gil is playing some kind of game here. I don't know if he's made this up whole cloth, but it may not be totally true. In any case, I was just left with a little feeling of strangeness. Although it is interesting that you know we knew that Celebrimbor was working on some kind of project. Your assumption and mine is that that project is in the title, which it will probably eventually be, but this is kind of their first attempt at finding some magical way for elves to maintain their kingdoms, even though, you know, change and the death and decay that change involves is a natural part of life. Elves, you know, even though they don't have the gift of a Louvatar of death, they have to find some way of countering that, or they think they do. You know, that's what's kind of interesting about this. It's like, we're not given a ton of direct evidence for any of this it's all kind of just like word of mouth and you know if we empathize with galadriel which i think a lot of us do then we already have reasons to distrust gilgalad and his decision making process so it's all kind of interesting you know what did you what did you think of all that
0: yeah, I felt kind of similarly to you where I was really intrigued by this. It was it was something where I was like, Oh, I was surprised by this. That you know, mm-hmm. there there haven't been a ton of surprises in this show so far, you know, because a lot of things, a lot of these characters we know, a lot of the main bullet points we know. But this was sort of an interesting reveal to me. And it's not an unfamiliar concept, you know. All throughout Lord of the Rings, you know, they talk constantly about how specifically Galadriel and Elrond use the elvish rings of power to protect their kingdom and to stave off decay and sort of maintain the the, the power and the longevity of the elves. It's kind of a nebulous concept where it's like, okay, the elves are decaying or, or diminishing. And it's, it's, it's something that's sort of talked about a lot, but the idea is that the rings are used to sort of maintain that power. So so the idea that the elves are are you know, diminishing and and Gilgalad is desperately searching for a way to help preserve that is is very true to Tolkien. But some of the details of, you know, the story about um the origin of Mithril is is interesting. And and I do like that it is presented as sort of, you know, Elrond is the one who's who says, you know, it's it's apocryphal. It's, it's I don't believe it's a true story. It's a legend. But I, I do believe that, you know, if Gilgalad is so desperate to maintain the power of the elves, that he would go to extreme lengths and, and maybe cling to these ideas of this legend he heard once about, you know, the power of a Silmaril seeping into the earth and, and creating mithril. So it was, I found it really interesting. Um, but I was particularly interested less in sort of the details of that and more about Elrond and sort of him grappling with the burden of this oath that he swore to his friend Durin in the last episode. And, and does he break that um, does he value his oath with his friend over his loyalty to his king and his loyalty to all of his people? There was a really lovely moment where, you know, gil sort of presents him with this choice. And he says, I, I cannot break my oath to my friend. I, I, that's kind of all I have. And he's, as gil walks away, Elrond is looking up at the stars, which I thought was really beautiful because yeah. he's looking for his dad. He's, he's looking, looking for his dad to his father for guidance. And then it immediately cuts to one of the great statues in, in Numenor where we see Erendil with the the Silmaril on his brow. It's it's a statue of him. So I thought that was a really, I'm less interested in some of the, like the lore and the details there, you know, about like, okay, is this a true story or not about the origin of Mithril? And as opposed to that emotional connection between Elrond and, and Durin and does he betray his friend or, you know, betray his his people? So I, I thought that was a really, I, I was very Moved by that, even if some of like the details of the plot, I was a little, you know, like, oh, I've I've never heard that before. That's an interesting idea. But to me, focusing it on that relationship, I thought was really, really beautiful.
1: Yeah, and that's something that the show is kind of poised to give us. You know, we don't really get into Elrond's head a lot in Lord of the Rings or Silmarillion, or, or think about his emotional relationships to his dad and his brother. You know, you can read his affection for his brother Elros into the ways he cares for Aragorn and all of that. But it's cool to kind of see that a little viscerally. I also think what's interesting about this whole storyline is how it reflects the relationship between dwarves and elves. Yeah. Durin is quickly becoming my favorite character. Uh, me too. I, I love the performance. I love the character. He makes me laugh and smile all the time, especially at the end of this episode when he, as you said, Elrond was defending his friendship and his oath to his friend against his king and Durin basically kind of promised to do the same. So that friendship is really lovely to see and obviously has been since they first appeared together in the second episode. Obviously, this isn't the first Elfdorf friendship we've seen on screen, but what's interesting about this is it's kind of like You know, Legolas and Gimli were also, like, together for months and months and months, just with each other, with Aragorn and the Fellowship. Like, they weren't constantly having to report back to their dads or their (laughs) rulers who had other agendas. So you see kind of how this... You know, because it would be so easy to think, you know, watch Lord of the Rings and see how Gimli and Legolas get along or or watch this show and see how Durin and Elrond get along and be like, so what's the big deal with dwarves and elves? You know, this is kind of how that happened. It's it's not so much like an individual thing as it is like, you know, two nations and two two polities and and stuff that have different kind of conflicting agendas. You know, whenever they're together, they get along. It's whenever they have to go back and report to King Durin or Gilgalad that they're like... Uh, No, you shouldn't do that. You should lie to him. You should do this, that, or the other thing. So, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that this storyline doesn't end tragically in multiple ways because we know the state of dwarf elf enmity at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. And and as we've alluded to on previous episodes, you know, digging for Mithril will um, eventually lead to speaking of, which is another part of that story is it's a little bit of foreshadowing too, because digging for Mithril will lead to the Balrog that will destroy everything we love about the kingdom of Khazad-dûm. Uh, that might be coming in season five, but you know, we know that that's an end point. So, you know, it's cool. And, you know, our listeners maybe they've only watched the movies or only read Lord of the Rings itself, but even people who have read The Silmarillion or maybe haven't read it in a while, maybe it's worth kind of rehashing a little bit the history of the dwarf elf relationship, not least because Durin, every time he stubs his toe or gets mad or whatever, invokes Ale, who is one of the Valar and actually the creator of the dwarves because the dwarves were created in a very different way. Two elves and men who were both created by Iluvatar, dwarves were not. And there's certain kind of, opposition built into them from the get-go because of their different origins. But then there are also a couple specific things that happen in the Silmarillion that make that relationship even more kind of visceral and and angry. And it seems like this show is poised to maybe show us some more uh, you know, kind of flashpoints in this long, tumultuous relationship. But Devin, did you want to begin a little history lesson for our viewers? I mean,
0: I'll let you take that one, but there, yeah, I love sort of how the, I, I've been really delighted by how the show has sort of like taken some of these like little references and little nods throughout, like, like in one of the very first episodes when um, Elrond first travels to cause of doom and, and we hear um, Disa say, like you said, uh, as a swear, it's Ale's beard, as opposed yes, to Ale's in beard. the Lord of the Rings, it's it's always Durin's beard, which is, I thought was a, a fun little weird detail that, that of course, you know, thousands of years ago, they would have a different, you know, reference point there.
1: Right, and shows that kind of the, the familiarity and relationship to the Valar will kind of only decrease over time.
0: Exactly, because it's so much newer in, I mean, it's only been a couple thousand years at this point, and it'll be several thousand more by the time the third age rolls around. But yeah, kind of walk us through a little bit, as you mentioned, you know, there is this difference in their creation, um, you know, dating back to when the elves awoke under the stars and then the the dwarves were essentially created in secret by mm-hmm. by Ali. They were sort of crafted from, brought to life out of stone. Walk us through sort of how that sort of sets up that, like you said, that clash between the, the elves and the dwarves.
1: Right. The elves and men are the creations of Iluvatar. The elves are the firstborn. They live forever unless they get killed. And men... Are the second born race and they get the gift of Luvatar, which is death and mortality which means that their lives mean something when they're on earth middle earth because they only have a limited time and then you know tolkien was a catholic so then it also involves that they get to go somewhere beyond whereas elves will die with the world and dwarves were not created by Iluvatar they were created by one of the valar which is the pantheon they're not really gods because Iluvatar is the god but they function like a pantheon from mythology they kind of familiar, all the familiar archetypes like Manwe, who's the leader and who they, I believe Gilgalad name checks him in that story. He says the elf that fought the Balrog was as noble as Manwe.
0: Yeah. I think he says he has the strength of Manwe or something along those lines.
1: He has the strength of Manwe. Yeah. Cause Manway's like Zeus. He's the yeah. god of the, he's the sky father and the god of the eagles are Manwe's uh, best buds. He lives at the top of Olympus, all this kind of stuff. There's Varda is his queen. Yep
0: called Elbereth by the elves.
1: Yeah, and then I just, I saw some some eagle-eyed people online, fans pointing out online that there's maybe a little coded reference to Varda in the background of of a previous episode where one of her constellations, which is a sickle, uh, because Varda's amazing. She's kind of like, you know, she's analogous to Hera or Athena, I guess, as kind of the the foremost female goddess. Um, but she's she's also like Athena or whatever. She's also kind of a goddess of war.
0: Well, she's supposedly the only one who who really scared
1: who scares Morgoth. Yeah, and so she put this constellation in the sky like a sickle as a uh, memo to him that I'm going to get you someday. And uh, she eventually did. We love that. And she's kind of the the goddess of stars. Yeah, she's amazing. I'm not going to go through all the Valar. Just I, I just wanted to bring that. Those were the two. Those are the two, <laughs> two main ones. And then Ole is like Hephaestus or something. He's the smith right. god. He's the god of craftsmen. And so he's doing all this stuff. He's building all these things in the early days of the world. And, but he's a smith. And you know any kind of scientist or, or craftsman or whatever. They always want to push their art as far as they can. And so he eventually takes it. Well, why don't I try to create life, my own beings? And So he creates these beings kind of out of stone and minerals and stuff. Um, but he doesn't have the power of life. So he can't bring them to life. He can only kind of mold their form. And uh, Aluvatar finds out, and instead of being mad, like he kind of understands where Ale is coming from. And he acquiesces to it in that he gives life to the dwarves. So that's where the dwarves come from. They just have this different, like at their very root, they're different from the elves. They're not as blessed. They're not as chosen. You know, you can see some of that still in Durin's kind of instinctual resentment of of Elrond and the elves as kind of these highborn, you know, privileged class of beings who don't really care for uh people, beings that they see as less special than them. And I only the only reason I wanted to, to, to get into the Valar as much as I did is because there's a subsidiary class of being called the Maiar who are more like angels. And the Maiar kind of, each Maiar is in the entourage of a Valar. There's one that they learn from. And the reason I mention that is because one of Ale's Maiar, one of the Maiar that originally followed Ale, was Sauron, which is why Sauron is so good at making things and building things, which we will, of course, see over the course of the show before he joined the Rebellion, you know, joined Lucifer's Rebellion and joined Morgoth. So that's kind of the the deep-rooted thing. And then there are, you know, some things that happen in the Silmarillion. Um, If I'm remembering correctly, a big one is... The Elf King Fingal at one point had this amazing necklace that was like the masterpiece of the dwarves to that time because the dwarves follow Ale. They are created by the God of Craftsmen. And so they take a lot of pride in being craftsmen themselves and they create all this beautiful... Jewelry and weapons and stuff, Uh, the Norgolomir, I might be mispronouncing that, was this necklace that they had given to the elf king, and then he held it too long, and eventually a bunch of dwarves like to kill him and and steal it back, Uh, so that's bad, and elves have long (laughs) memories, I mean, Galadriel remembers Valinor, you know, like, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's one thing maybe with Rohan and Gondor to kind of overcome their differences in in Lord of the Rings because, you know, as generations have passed, older kings have died and stuff. That doesn't really happen with the elves. So when something, when you do something bad to them, even though those dwarves are long dead, the elves remember. So they hold a grudge. Those are the highlights kind of of the history of the dwarf elf rivalry for anybody who's curious. And I really am enjoying the way that the show is portraying it and portraying the way that You know, maybe as individuals, you can connect one way, but that's not necessarily how different peoples connect and and things pop up and people have different motivations. So I'm really excited to see where this uh, storyline keeps going.
0: Yeah. And uh, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but the table is so good. It's yeah. such a good, like, indication of that whole relationship where you can tell that, you know, Durin is trying to, you know, kind of play on the fact that Gil-Galad doesn't know a lot about dwarves. And he <laughs> he's trying to be a good politician and being like, you know, and, and, and pick his battles very much so. And, and Durin just totally takes advantage of that. And and the little <laughs> detail at the end where, where Elrond's like, you made all that up, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, decent, decent one has been wanting a new table. table. <laughs> So I cannot wait to see how great that table looks in Casadum. In,
1: Casa <laughs> in Disa's living room, yeah. Exactly. She's got a great plan for it.
0: That was something I was delighted by. Um, well, we talked a little bit about... There's that great scene where we see Elrond looking up at the stars, and then it cuts to the statue of his dad in Numenor.
1: So let's... Cut to uh, Numenor. Cut
0: to Numenor. Let's let's set sail for for Numenor, where where a lot of things are happening. The last episode was a very Numenor heavy episode, which which ended with Muriel um vowing to go to war and amass an army and and head to the Southlands as asked by Galadriel. And here we see sort of the the preparations for that. It's sort of the calm before the storm as everybody is preparing to, to set sail. We see great armies being amassed. We see sailors preparing. There's a great shot of somebody lifting a horse via crane onto a ship. This poor horse is like dangling in the air. I love this horse. <laughs> I want to know everything about this horse. <laughs> but, uh, and, we, and we hear a little bit about, you know, there, there's a lot of different Pieces here. I particularly we got to talk about a scene that should come as no surprise to you that I absolutely loved because Christian knows that um, I love ladies with swords, and so I absolutely loved the the scene where Galadriel just totally schools all of these Numenorean recruits on how to train and and use a sword and. Sure, it was a little self-indulgent, a little ridiculous, but I loved every single minute of it. The score was so much fun. I loved the smile on Morf with Clark's face as she's leaping around with the sword. It shows the the agility and the the skill of the elves um, in such a beautiful way, and I absolutely loved the scene. I like immediately rewound it and was like, I can't wait to pull that up on YouTube just all the time and just like rewatch. Galadriel just having the fun of just jumping around with a sword like man I, w- I want a sword <laughs> I don't know what to do with a sword but I, I want a sword <laughs> do you
1: not have one I thought you got one recently I do have a, a replica of sting okay so well, I guess it's up for debate whether sting is a sword or not
0: it's more of a dagger it's kind of a short sword Yeah,
1: it's a sword for a yeah. hobbit yeah exactly um no I loved that scene too it's great to see Galadriel having some fun she hasn't had a ton of opportunity for that uh, so far in the show, uh, you know, and you know what it reminded me of uh, a scene from another show. We love Avatar, the last airbender in the third season when Aang is pretending to be a, a Fire Nation kid and is uh, kind of in the in a similar situation where he's in kind of this yard with these firebending boys and provokes them or whatever. So they're fighting him. And and he does kind of that gladrial thing where he's a pacifist and an airbender and all that. We're not going to get into that. But he does the same thing <laughs> where he just like he schools all these people not even by sometimes the best way to own someone in a fight is to just like easily dodge all their blows you know so um, I enjoyed that and it gave me some ang vibes from uh, Galadriel there.
0: It's a little Luke Skywalker Last Jedi where he faces off against Kylo Ren.
1: Yes another good comparison. We,
0: we love a sword fight where swords that don't actually touch. Don't actually or lightsabers. Touch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> As discussed on Dagobah Dispatch recently. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Um, if you were a Star Wars fan, you can hear us uh, yell about Star Wars too, if, <laughs> if you didn't hear enough of us being total geeks um, about Middle Earth. But um, no, yeah, I, I was really fascinated by all the stuff in in Numenor. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to point out and mention was uh, some of the stuff with Isildur and Alendil, uh, where specifically he, you know, he got kicked out of the sea guard but now he's like oh this is my chance i'm gonna go to war i'm gonna find my purpose and become a war hero
1: speaking of luke skywalker major luke
0: skywalker vibes and he goes to his dad and is like dad can you cut me to the front of the line and like so i can get on your ship and his dad is like so disappointed and poor is like he kind of dresses him down a little bit which i kind of love like we love a disappointed dad speech yeah and it was kind of like a nice moment where you could see like a sildur kind of like reckon with the weight of sort of the path that's ahead of him and, and what he has to do if he wants to to become a, a person of note. And there was that line that sort of sent up little flares for me, which is where Elendil says something along the lines of, I hope that you find something that you're willing to risk anything for and that sort of was a little bit of a gut punch if you know where a silders story goes and you know he he does find something that he is willing to risk everything for um and it may prove to not be such a not such a good thing
1: <laughs> yeah wonder if his dad's words are ringing in his ears um when he refuses to to throw a certain object into a certain place but <laughs> for sure i liked uh you know, one thing that was interesting about that, it kind of draws an interesting comparison between Elendil and Farazon, doesn't it? Where Elendil is like, no, you don't get special privileges just for being my son. You have to earn it just like everybody else does. And then we see Farazon and his son. And of course, Farazon's son has been... Presumably spoiled his whole life, and and right. as a resu- and as a result, thinks that he has more power and influence than he does, and thinks that he can just walk up to his dad, not the regent, but you know the prime minister equivalent, basically of Numenor, and tell him what to do. and And Ferason dresses down his son in a way and is like, "Oh, you don't know anything, and you don't see the board at all, and you don't see how these moves are uh, advantaging me." Which makes sense because he has a little bit of a crush, and that's clearly what his his motivations are coming from. So I thought that was an interesting comparison. You know, we saw Farazhan speaking in the streets, demagoguish and, and kind of getting a crowd going. And now we hear from his son that, you know, Muriel may hold the scepter, but it's you the people follow. I thought that was also a good establishment, if it hasn't been made clear already, that he and Muriel are cousins and are both part of the ferrazon. He's not just like her advisor. He's also part of the royal family. Yeah. So I thought that was an important comparison and yeah, you know, I was a little disappointed that last episode ended with, all right, Numenor's going to Middle-earth. And this episode also ends with, all right, Numenor's going <laughs> to Middle-earth. But, but that did give us some, some needed momentum at the end of last week. And the extra moments we got on Numenor before the departure, I think are helping to establish the characters and their relationships and how they're similar and different from each other. Um, But, you know, Devin, you liked Galadriel's fun moment that she got to have this episode uh, in the the fighting yard. What did you think of her intense moment and her conversation with Halbrand, where she kind of bared her soul to someone, which we haven't really seen in the show so far?
0: Yeah, that was a really fascinating moment. And I've really been fascinated by the Halbrand-Galadriel relationship throughout the show. They're very antagonistic towards each other, but they also see the great potential in each other. And they also are sort of able to call each other out because they're both clearly running from something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's it's easy for them to recognize it in each other. And so, it sort of culminates with that, that big conversation between the two of them where she basically calls him out on running from his heritage and his destiny and his his duty to protect the Southlands and to protect his people and, and take up his uh, mantle. and he calls her out on sort of her constant quest for vengeance and her inability to leave anything alone and mm-hmm. her obsessive desire for for war essentially and and for conflict um, and she has that moment where where he asks her why and she says because I can't stop and she she doesn't know what she's been doing this for so long that she doesn't know, who she is without her her oath that she basically swore in her brother's place, and so it's it's interesting we've we've heard a lot about oaths in this show. You know, oaths play a big role here. We see Galadriel, you know, talking about her oath to her brother. Um, we obviously hear Elrond, you know, fretting over what to do about his oath to Durin um, about Mithril, and and oaths play a big role in in Tolkien's work. You know, we we see that across. His work. I mean, obviously, the Oathbreakers and the King under the Mountain is a huge plot line where Aragorn calls right. on these the, uh, this king to fulfill his his broken promise. Um, we hear it in Frodo speaking to Gollum. He makes Gollum basically swear to 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 protect him and and to not betray him
1: from Sam. The end of yeah. the fellowship. I made a promise, Mister Frodo. A promise.
0: Exactly. And so so promises play a very big role. And so so I, I'm fascinated by kind of Galadriel's journey and the idea of who is she without that promise? When can that promise ever be fulfilled? And who will she be if and when it is? So I, I was very fascinated by that. I also I love the the bit of of Halbrand kind of finally accepting his heritage and his fate and he shows up having taken a shower and having <laughs> washed his hair for the first time and looking kind of kingly and all the Numenoreans are like whoa who's this dude I thought this was just like some castaway with greasy <laughs> stringy hair now he looks like yeah. a real person it's like when Aragorn shows up and everybody's like oh wow he took a shower maybe he really is the king of Gondor <laughs> right.
1: but and in both cases it's kind of intentional like maybe if I'm just really dirty they won't think that i'm a king or whatever
0: exactly well not all that glitters is gold that's right Um, you know we we will get into that a little bit more later but (laughs) um yeah i i love that whole bit
1: yeah i just wanted to to add what you were saying about oaths being important to tolkien and lord of the rings there are a lot of great positive examples of sticking to your oaths and fulfilling them obviously the oath that the fellowship makes to each other that you know allows Aragorn in Legolas and Gimli to, to go save Merry and Pippin. Like I said last week, I've been rereading Two Towers, so that stuff is really fresh in my mind. But the other thing, which again, it's hard, you know, like I said, that's, that story in this episode about Mithril is Silmarillion E, but not actually in the Silmarillion. Something that is in the Silmarillion and runs throughout is this really kind of incredible opposite story of how sticking to an oath and fulfilling an oath. Can cause untold destruction and horror, and this is maybe the last Silmarillion reference I'll make this episode because this is not exactly That's a, lie. a Silmarillion. One hundred percent, not the last Silmarillion reference
0: you are going to make.
1: <laughs> Let's be real. But the sons of Feanor is make an yes. oath that only they get the Silmarils because their dad created them, and it's and it's their inheritance. And so throughout the Silmarillion, they maintain that oath. And an oath is one thing for hobbits to fulfill, but an oath. For elves to fulfill, and this is what Galadriel is experiencing in the show, if you're holding to an oath above everything else and you're immortal, then that can lead to some bad, dark places. Because there's, like I was saying, there's this natural change and the change of nature and the and the ways that life and the world change is a big part of Tolkien. And when an immortal makes an oath to maintain something, whether it's the sons of Fionnur, saying that only we get the Silmarils, only the sons of Fëanor get the Silmarils. It's his property, not heroic treasures or whatever. And Galadriel saying that no matter what, you may not be at war, but I'm at war and I'm always at war. For an immortal to do that is almost like fighting back against the world and nature and its, and its propensity to change. And so you know that's certainly what Gilgalad and Elrond kind of see in her and her quest. They see this as as ultimately destructive and not helpful because it's not adaptable to conditions or whatever. Um, so it'll be interesting to see because because both of those shadings of oaths are present in Tolkien's work. It can be a good thing and it can also be a really bad thing. And so I think that's important to keep in mind with Galadriel's oath.
0: Right, it's not something to be taken lightly. Exactly and you know speaking of oaths um, we we see another oath sworn uh, this episode over in the southlands a very bad oath
1: <laughs> Paul brand's homeland that he has abandoned yes what's exactly. going on exactly there? so
0: um, there's we we get to see Adar is, is 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 rising to power. He is amassing his army. He has set his sights on um, specifically Bronwyn's village, and they are. You know, we know that they are searching for the sword hilt, mm-hmm. and it, he is he is coming, and he he sort of makes an offer. To, to some of the, the the villagers that basically says, join me, or die, essentially. You, we love a classic kind of warlord offer.
1: Yeah, pretty simple.
0: Pretty simple. Um, And we, and we see a couple of people decide to go with him and, and pledge their fealty to them, one of whom is Waldreg, who, man, this guy sucks. <laughs> he, he, he just sucks. Every, I mean, I, I do love his, have you seen him, lad? <laughs> <Have> you <laughs> heard <laughs>
1: about Sauron?
0: Have you heard about Sauron? <laughs> and here we, we see he's like, oh my god, Sauron's back, and And then Adar's like, no, I'm not. What are you talking about?
1: Right. Yeah. I loved Waldrigg's kind of reveal last episode. That was one of my favorite moments of the show so far. And it's kind of interesting. You know, I wonder for him to directly kind of ask Adar if he's Sauron and be denied in that way. Uh, You know, we talked a lot last week about how we really enjoy how this show is playing very vague about Sauron's presence. And you kind of feel him in a lot of different places, but he hasn't manifested fully. And I wonder if Adar, you know, even though he, he wants to be his own person and, and isn't going to lie and say that he's Sauron. I wonder if he's, he's been using that vagueness to his advantage, you know, whether it's among the orcs or whether it's among these Southlanders that he's trying to recruit, kind of keeping it vague is probably good for him but he can't take a direct question like that like in that case he has to deny it because he wants to be known for himself but you know that was interesting i was interested kind of thinking about that and whether he's kind of likes to keep it vague among people or or even have people think he says he's not sauron but mm, i don't know
0: well it's a little bit how like sauron is sort of like yeah i mean I'm tight with Morgoth. Like, I, I'm very much, like, carrying exactly. on his legacy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, hey, if you really liked that guy, you should, you know, you know what the next best thing is? Right. He is the right. second in command.
1: Right. Or even similar, like, you know, there whenever there's a vacuum, like, who's going to step up yeah. to fill that vacuum? And Sauron did that when Morgoth was gone. And now that Sauron's kind of in the wind, Adar's kind of doing that too. Like you said, a warlord kind of stepping up and, You know, well, uh, who knows? But I'm here, and you can follow me. You know,
0: I've been kind of impressed with how the show has kind of held Sauron back a little bit. It wasn't like I didn't expect it. Yeah, I didn't expect it either. I, I thought very much when they announced, okay, we're doing the second age story. I thought, okay, well, who are they going to cast as Sauron?
1: Who's hot Sauron, yeah.
0: Who's going to be hot Sauron? Oh, I, I, we, we have to get hot Sauron. I mean, like, <laughs> come on. He's got to be, like, the hottest person ever. Like, I, I can't wait for the, like, thirsty Tumblr gif sets about him. <laughs> um, but seriously, like, that, the, the rise and, and eventual fall of Sauron is the story of the second age, essentially. Um, right. And so... I think the show is being very smart. It's sort of being like, he's lurking. His presence is being felt and he might he might be a character we've already met. He may be an entirely new character. Right. Part of me does wonder if, you know, Helle Brimbor and, and Gil Gallad or, you know, they've sort of got this idea planted in their heads of like, oh, we have to build this giant forge and maybe mm-hmm. Mithril is the the key to to our, our stuff. Something mm-hmm. kind of makes me wonder if like somebody's been whispering that in their ears. Yeah.
1: Did they come up with that idea themselves?
0: Somebody we haven't met yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's, there's an I, I think it's a very interesting idea for the show to present. What do you think? Do you think Saren is someone we've met yet? Or do you think it's someone we haven't met yet?
1: So of the likely candidates which I would say are the are the most popular candidates online that I see people say are Sauron.
0: Clearly Malva the Harfoot. She's the worst. <laughs>
1: I'm kidding. Uh, but even the Harfoots have some weird attitudes around yeah. You know, Sauron's not a Harfoot, but, mm. you know, you, you, that's what I like about it is that you see this kind of darkness at the edges of a lot of different things. And I think it's important for this role that Sauron plays in the Second Age, like you said, particularly in Numenor is... He has to make people think that, like, oh, this guy isn't as bad as I heard. Like, right. I heard that this guy was a big old deal, but I can handle. I can handle him. So I think this will be an effective way of doing that. Is like if you have all these rumors and and tall tales and Galadriel's oath and where Sauron is he here is he not and then he shows up in mortal form, it'll be easier for people to think like, oh, well, this isn't he is like evil itself, you know? And when he's a person, it's like, oh, well that's not, he's just a he's the incarnation of evil. I can strike a deal with him, you know, because that's what it is. It's it's not like people are like, well, I'll let him do whatever he wants, but the elves and the Numenorean kings will eventually convince themselves that they can handle him, that they can make a deal with him and keep him under control, which of course they are wrong about. But uh, so I think this is an interesting stepping stone to getting there. I will say of the main candidates, one of whom shows up for the first time in this episode, who we'll talk about in a minute. Obviously, Adar seemed like the most logical, which I think is why the show made a point of him denying it this episode. But I do have questions about Hallbrand. I do too. I do wonder if it's Hallbrand. like Because one of the things I'm looking at, and I talk about it in my recap of this episode this week on EW.com, is what you're kind of seeing is you're seeing different figures and different characters step into roles or do things that we know Sauron does. Adar is a leader of orcs. Sauron's the only Sauron and Morgoth are the only ones we've known to lead orcs. Hall Brand, it hasn't quite happened yet, but he is accumulating prestige and a reputation in Numenor. He's starting to get Fëarazôn's ear. That's something Sauron does. Things like this are happening, and they're split among different characters. So who's the most likely? I don't know. I think maybe my money is on it's someone we haven't seen yet. Of the ones we have seen, I don't know. I'm kind of looking askance at Hallbrand uh, more and more.
0: Well, as soon as he sees a forge, he's like, that's what I want to Exactly.
1: like what I said about uh, Sauron and Ole earlier, that he's a craftsman. He's
0: like, that's where I belong. That monstrous strength has to come from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you know what you could use that forge to do? Make a really cool <laughs> ring. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> So yeah, I'm a, am a little curious about that too. I think it's it's a very interesting kind of thing that they're setting up. This is um my other theory about Halren and this is again super early and a total theory and um is a little maybe a little I don't think it's spoiler because it's just theory, but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they were setting him up to be one of the Nazgûl or oh, a wraith or sure sure. So I cuz like you know, we know that the nine ring wraiths were mortal men and they were mortal Kings.
1: And maybe he's the witch King. Oh, I
0: mean, so that's, that's my theory.
1: That would be awesome.
0: I have another theory and see, I'm just going to throw out all my theories. Um, We know there was the King under the mountain, the King of Dunharrow, who um, broke his oath and uh, betrayed a when it was time to, to fight Sauron. Yeah. Um, And that was what was led to um, Aragorn calling for, them to fulfill their oath that I mean, he could, he, he, we know he's walked away from his, his duties yeah. in the past. So again, I'm throwing out like nine different theories in the hopes that at least one of them will be correct. Um. So I'm covering all my bases.
1: Yeah. And you know, the farther we get, you know, the, the, especially the early episodes of the show just had to introduce us to so much that now we've kind of got the ingredients in the pot and can kind of play with them and turn them over and think about them, which is fun. And I guess on that note, Maybe we move from Sauron Watch into Gandalf Watch. Let's go. It's time for Gandalf Watch. And talk about the first song in this show.
0: <laughs> Let's go. Which, as you said,
1: as you alluded, quotes one of the most famous Tolkien poems. This is something that the movies have a little bit, you know, with Pippin's song in uh, Return of the King, Treebeard's song, if you watch Two Towers Extended, um, but certainly in the books. People just burst in a song all the time. <laughs> like There's so much singing. There's so much music and lyrics in the text of Lord of the Rings, especially when characters are just like traversing nature. Because I assume this is something that J.R.R. Tolkien did in real life. We would go on these long walks through the woods and just kind of compose poetry about the trees he saw. And so we finally kind of get that in this episode with uh, Nori has a, has a song that she sings.
0: No, it's Poppy has a song. Oh, it's
1: she, Poppy. Okay. Sings.
0: Yeah, it's it's Megan Richards has a has a beautiful voice. Yeah, um, I think Megan told me or or, or I read somewhere that um, originally, like I think she was doing karaoke with the cast, and oh. the showrunners were kind of like, "Hey, would you be down to sing?" Oh, this <laughs> and is great scoop. <laughs> so, which I which I absolutely love, and she was like, "Yeah, I guess." And and I really I was totally delighted by this. I so love I. a musical montage. I have been so impressed by Bear McCreary's music throughout this entire series.
1: Yeah, you mentioned it earlier. I was I was hoping you would give him more of a shout out.
0: Yeah, I I think to me part of the reason the Peter Jackson films are so beloved is Howard Shore's score is incredible and the music percent. is hugely elevates it and I think Bear McCreary's score is doing the same thing for the show where it is so extraordinary and and beautiful and it sounds middle-earth-esque, you know, it just, it feels kind of has that wonderful fantasy vibe to it, and and I really loved Poppy's song here. Um, it takes lines from you know uh, that that iconic Bilbo poem, uh, "Not all who wander are lost. All that is gold does not glitter," et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of like the idea that maybe Bilbo composed that poem based on. It, it's about Aragorn. It's about right. Aragorn. You know,
1: return the Riddle of Strider. I think it's called the
0: Riddle of Strider. And um, but I like the idea that he maybe lifted one of those lines from kind of like a classic Hobbit story or a classic Hobbit song.
1: I'm sure he did. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, Cause we know he loves songs. Oh my God. He all the time. And, and, and you hear Frodo and Sam, you know, reciting songs that, that Bilbo taught them. And so there's this idea of, of song as um you know a way to connect with the generations that came before you and after you and so i i loved this whole bit um i was delighted by it i mean one of my my biggest complaints about tom bombadil not being in the peter jackson right. films is that he's got some absolute bangers he's of got songs. the best
1: songs his songs rock
0: so good so more songs please yeah. let's do a whole all musical episode like give me a power <laughs> ballad from from muriel like <laughs> I, I would see love that actually. A beautiful duet between Durin and Elrond. Yeah,
1: like,
0: just all music <laughs> all the time. Give yeah. me the
1: musical episode. They could do it. I mean, if they wanted to, I would buy it. Tolkien would approve. He sure would. That's <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. This is a very Tolkien-y thing. To have characters burst in the songs, especially traveling in nature. You know, and and the Harfoots aren't traveling alone. Thankfully, because they're stuck at the back of the line, they have some help from the stranger who is learning. English or common, as it's referred to in Middle-earth. He's learning to speak. And so, you know, the time, I think, is drawing close when he will be able to speak for himself and tell us and the Harfoots a little bit maybe about who he is and what he's here for. Before I get into that, just a moment of Gandalf watch where we calculate all the Gandalf-esque things that the stranger does uh, when they're getting attacked by those monstrous warthogs and he kind of slams his fists into the ground. Sending a shockwave to knock them back. You know, if he is Gandalf, one day he will have a staff that makes that a little easier. Slam into the ground without breaking your poor hand. Wasn't sure about the ice though. I don't know that that's a cataloged Gandalf power. Uh, he's always he's usually associated with fire, but as we see, whoever he is, whatever powers he has, he's having some trouble uh, keeping them under control and and kind of learning to acclimate himself to being in Middle Earth which if he is one of the Astari he's one of the Maiar, that's another reason I brought that up, that has manifested in an earthly body so it it would make sense that there would maybe be a learning curve about, you know, things that you can do in Valinor cause a little more damage uh, in Middle Earth
0: yeah. And he sort of inadvertently hurts Nori, which is, is a really, which is a scene that kind of broke my heart a little bit. And, yeah, and you see sad. for the first time, she's always been on his side. She has always trusted him. And for the first time she truly sees how powerful he is and how he, even if he's not malicious, he can't always control his power. Right. Um, and, and that was, that was sort of a, a beautiful kind of heartbreaking moment between the two of them and, and, you know, the look in his eyes when he kind of realizes what he's done. It gave me a little bit of like, it gave me strong Iron Giant vibes. Mm. The whole, like, he doesn't know his own strength. He's sort of, and when she's like, no, you're a friend. And he's like, friend. And I was like, this is very Iron Giant to me.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Which is a movie I love very much.
1: Yeah. Another comparison that jumps to mind is Frozen, maybe just because of the ice. But, you know, Elsa kind of harming Anna when they're kids with her uncontrollable powers leads to repercussions throughout that movie. But I would say kind of the most interesting beat to me, that was all good stuff. I I really liked the Harfoot segment this episode, and I like that we let off with it, which we don't always do to kind of recenter them after taking last week off. But something interesting, Nori and the Harfoots are no longer the only beings in Middle Earth that are aware of his presence. Obviously, everybody saw the comet land, and in this episode, we see a group of figures investigating the crater and, and running their hands along it. You know, Devin, as you and I have talked, and as, if anyone who's been interested in Rings of Power and has kind of been following along the coverage and the hints of it in the months before the premiere may remember this, when the trailer dropped at San Diego Comic-Con, this character, this blonde Eminem-looking guy who's, <laughs> who's feeling around in the crater, was kind of tweeted out by a popular movie account as like, this is Sauron. And so, you know, it wasn't just because of that that I thought that we would see Sauron manifested in the show, you as you said you and I already already thought that, but that was certainly certainly had our expectations up to see like so and so will be playing Sauron. But on first glance, this guy is not giving me Sauron vibes. However, he his name might also start with S and he might be a slightly different figure. He and his little entourage are wearing white flowing robes, which Sauron is not particularly known for even in his hot boy era and one of them is holding a staff which as I said the stranger does not have yet and is not Saruman's staff as we will come to learn it but if the stranger is Gandalf as the signs seem to be pointing you know, we're, we're obviously already playing a little loose with the lore because Gandalf's arrival in Tolkien in Middle-earth is at the port of Sirdan, and that's where Sirdan gives him the ring. He, You know, crashing to Earth in a meteor is new. But one thing that would be a little harder to change, I think, is the order that the Astari arrive in Middle-earth. And in Tolkien, Gandalf is the last of the Astari to arrive. And so if it is Gand, if the Stranger is Gandalf, and they might just be, there might be a zigzag or, or a twist left, even in the face of the accumulating evidence, then Saruman would be here already. And while Gandalf or Mithrandir has always presented himself very humbly in Middle-earth, which is why Sirdan kind of, what Sirdan saw in him, that he was this great power, but was not presenting it. Saruman's not really like that. And he... Oh, he loves a show. He loves a show. He loves, um fashion. He loves having followers. Um, You know, this is a very brief snippet of a scene that we get. So maybe I'm reading a little too into it, but that's my read on it is I would finger this guy for Saruman before uh, Sauron.
0: An interesting theory, not one I had, (laughs) I had picked up on, but now you might, you might've convinced me. Cause yeah, in the (laughs) credits, these three are, are credited as I think the nomad, the aesthetic and the dweller. Um, hmm. which doesn't which doesn't tell us a lot but yeah. there's three of them yeah we know there are uh the five istari um, mm-hmm. and they've they've got at one point they're looking down at the crater and they've got this sort of big plate and it's got the strangers constellation on it um that's sort of like f-shaped constellation that we see him scratching into the um oh you know, yeah and, sure and, and arranging with the fireflies um so they have some sort of connection to him and they it seems like they are searching for him in, in mm-hmm. some way way, shape or form, but what they, what they want with him is, is very intriguing. And this is, this is another mystery that is, is very unsolved.
1: Yeah. And we don't know where it's going. Um, even if it is Saruman, I don't, uh, necessarily know what he's doing or what he's going to think of the stranger when he finds him. Uh, it would be fun if the other two were the Blue Wizards, uh, but <laughs> Devin and I are always hoping that the we're blue always Wizards, on Blue Wizard watch. The Blue just, Wizard I watch. Blue, the blue Wizards. Wizards, you know, the, their artifacts are you know a little aquamarine in addition to their <laughs> white clothes. So yeah, in an, an, an episode with a lot of kind of tantalizing teases and such. Uh, Devin, is there anything that you wanted to discuss that we hadn't gotten to yet?
0: I think we hit um, pretty much all the basics. Just that I'm I'm really curious to to see where things go next. We only have three episodes left: six, seven, and eight. And I'm I'm curious whether we'll get to see some some meetings um, between people as like the Numenorians head to I really Halflands, hope so. Yeah, and we'll get to see some of these these storylines get to converge a little bit because mm-hmm. up until now, a lot of people have sort of been in their own little kingdoms or right. literally on their own island. So I'm I'm curious to see as people come together and, yeah. and whether we might get some some meetings um because the name of this episode is partings so i'm curious whether the next one might be meetings
1: <laughs> could be <laughs> yeah no I'm, i totally feel the same and that's kind of been the trust that i've put in the show since the beginning is the show is very slow paced i've heard from some people that they have a little bit of trouble getting through the first episode, which I think is why they released the first two at once, because the second is where you get some meetings and you get characters colliding and stuff, whereas the first one is a lot of table setting. And and it's a show that knows its worth, you know, it knows the resources it has at its disposal. It's not at all worried about being can you know getting canceled or, or anything like that. And I recognized that. And so my hope has been that, hey, it's a slow build, it's a slow burn, but Given the production value, given the investment of the actors and the directors and the writers and all this stuff, the beauty in the construction of Numenor and all these other locales, that it will pay off and that things will start to, to escalate and collide. And, you know, the Numenorian expedition is kind of. Uh, I think the first kind of flashpoint, um, you know, based on timing, it seems like they might arrive maybe right as Adar is trying to uh, conquer Bronwyn's village, and so uh, Galadriel and Arendir, thats that's a meeting that I would love to see. They maybe have a little more in common than than they would with the the high elven lords uh, in Linden. Bronwyn and Halbrand. That could be an interesting uh, meeting. So that's the one that I think is first on the menu, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising if the Harfoots run into people eventually, if, if these mysterious figures catch up with them in the stranger. That's what I'm really looking forward to. The back half of the season is, um, you know, there are things being built that are going to take seasons to pay off, like we said, whether it's the ultimate fate of Numenor, or the ultimate fate of khazad Doom, the, the Last Alliance, those things are long game, but even in this first season, I think we're going to start seeing um, some fireworks go off and I'm really excited for that.
0: I think the, the first few episodes have introduced a lot of questions and I think we're starting to get a couple answers, yeah. which I'm, I'm very curious about and very excited to see. Well, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back uh, we are headed to Linden and you can hear my interview with Benjamin Walker, a.k.a. the King of the Elves, Gil himself. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me, Ben. I'm so excited to, to speak with you again about, about episode five.
2: My pleasure. It's pretty good.
0: <laughs> it's a pretty fun one. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, we have to, I have a million questions for you, but we have to start with that amazing dinner table scene with, with Durin and Elrond and the table. Tell me, what do you remember most about filming that, that sequence?
2: Um, it was kind of like this beautiful, fantastical poker game. Where everybody's trying to guess what cards the other one is holding without upsetting everyone at the table. And working with Owen is an absolute dream. You know, he's got these layers of prosthetics and beard and nose, and we're doing the the scale work, so he's much smaller and he's there with the big glass. And when you stare into his eyes, all that stuff fades away, and you're just talking to the prince. And with all that comes with making middle earth where you can find those just pure quintessential moments of two crafts people that's just it's gold
0: yeah that's probably so much fun because you you've probably got so many things to think about you've got your costume you've got like you said the scale work you know you're on these amazing sets but like when you have those moments where you're like oh i'm having dinner with a dwarf and a bunch of elves like that must be pretty magical.
2: Yeah, you're sitting there thinking, say Mithril, say Mithril, say Mithril. You know, like it, you do kind of, and you're supported by those other things. You know, that there are tools that create Middle Earth around you. And, you know, you may be thinking, my ears itch. And then all of a sudden, you're just transported somewhere else. That's, that happens rarely in any job. And uh, that was one of the days where it happened tenfold
0: that's pretty magical. And yeah, in this episode we learn a little bit more about Gilgalad's motivations. You know, we learn that he's he's searching for mithril. He and Celebrimbor you know, believe that it will help stave off decay and preserve the the power of the elves. What interested you about about that sort of, you know, storyline that that Gilgalad has this, you know, he he's trying to do the right thing for his people, but he's sort of manipulating maybe some of the people around him.
2: Well, Sure. Manipulating, I, from my point of view, I'm sure Rob would disagree, is a bit <laughs> of a strong word. Fair um, enough. It, that it's kind of um, the understanding that if there is no other way, that were I to flat out ask you, um, none of this would work. It's, it's the idea that there's an asteroid coming towards the Earth. Do I tell everyone that or do... I call a guy who's got a spaceship and ask if I can borrow it. That's what a good leader does is he, he accepts the burden of the responsibility and only divvies it out when necessary. Now, some yeah. people can be frustrated by that, of course, because you are controlling the flow of information. But that's what that's what a loving parent does. Ask me when you're older. You don't Fair. tell your five year old. Well, there's an asteroid coming towards the Earth. Well, I'll let, give me a second, and I'll explain what an asteroid is.
0: <laughs> exactly. When you're a you know thousands of years old as an elf, you've you you know, and you've got all the cards. You you have to be careful about what what information you
2: dispense. Sure, especially when it involves the end of the Earth, end of the Middle Earth.
0: There you go. Absolutely. And yeah, I think it's this whole episode is kind of a, a fascinating view into, you know, kind of who Gil-Galit is and and you know what his his motivations are. I mean, take me back to when you were first sitting down and kind of trying to figure out how to figure him out. What were some of like the pillars or or guideposts that you found particularly helpful in kind of figuring out who he is and and what his his motivations are?
2: Sure. For example, you know, he's one of the few that is unbeguiled by Anatar. He um writes this letter to the Numenoreans, I think it's Tar Menendor, I believe that's right, um, uh, where he predicts the coming of evil. Um, He has this kind of um, prescient nature, and that's interesting to me. I also find it interesting that there's a bit of mystery about his parentage. And if you look at the two family lines, one is kind of the the warrior prince and the others kind of the politician and the fact that even later in his life, Tolkien was wrestling with who he wanted Gilgalad to be. I think that's indicative. I don't find that frustrating. I find that as another little clue that he exists in the space between the two. And um, also considering how long, how far we have to go in his journey, a little bit of mystery goes a long way that he he is playing the long chess of peace even the fact that you know what we know about aglos you know in some ways he has this you know nuclear weapon that he keeps under his bed you know he's um that he chooses not to use you know that you know it It the idea that he would flip the table is very believable um but when does he choose to use mercy? When does he use patience and grace? And that that's a healthy thing.
0: I, I love that. And I, I, I love that, you know, were you somebody who really like dove into the lore and wanted to like, it, it sounds like you you really, you know, kind of embraced everything that had been written about him, but also sort of tried to fill in some of the gaps and, you know, with, with the show. Does, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it makes total sense. And you have to. And every, even if it's not specifically about your character, Um, you're learning about something your character would know. I mean, we're elves. We have eternal memories. Everything in the first stage, pretty much, he would understand what would it have been like to to have been a child refugee, in a sense, kind of waiting out war. How, How much death and destruction would he have witnessed in his coming of age? And all those little nuggets are important. And also, it's just fun to read. Some of the Silmarillion is dense. But um, I actually, I found this uh, graphic novel on a fan site where they'd done a graphic novel, and I used it as Cliff Notes, and it really helped. (laughs) If you're listening, thank you. Um, And um, no, even trying to understand the poetry of how he writes, you know, that's how the elves speak and think. It's only good to go back to the material. And I enjoy doing it. I found a job where part of it is they pay you to read Tolkien. I've pretty much won the lottery.
0: That's that's kind of the dream, yeah. If oh, that, that that if if I knew that was a job when I was a kid, I feel like that would have been my my dream job. <laughs> like, what yeah. do you want to be when you grow up?
2: Well, <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, I want to be king of the elves.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's and I go. like that. There's freedom within the structure. You know, we understand Tolkien's structure, and within that. We use what we know, and then, like in a scene with Owen, then you can play. He creates the playground. Your director tells you stay on the slide, and then you go have a good time.
0: Yeah, and I love, um, you know, throughout the series, I've really loved some of the scenes with you and Rob as as Elrond. I think he's he's so extraordinary, and I love the the relationship there. Tell me a little bit about working with Rob. What's he What's he like on set?
2: Awesome. He wears the half-elf nature of Elrond very well, that kind of troubled needing to prove himself. And it makes sense why he would feel manipulated. But I also think Gilgalad, knowing what he knows and kind of having the bird's eye view, can see that it's an opportunity for him to prove himself. Um, yeah, we we work well together. We went to the same college, so we have a similar vocabulary. And um we both love tolkien, and um, we both feel a level of responsibility to the material um so it's it's great. he also has an incredible sense of humor. Don't talk to Rob for too long, or he will do an impression of you that will shatter your self-image
0: <laughs> does he does he have impressions of, of of you and and everybody
2: everyone and they are chillingly accurate. <laughs>
0: which was the which was the most chilling.
2: He does uh, a verbatim impression of the message on my voicemail. So <laughs> and like the realization that that's been on there for years and people have been hearing it and this is a pretty good recreation of how it sounds makes you just very self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's amazing. And
2: also laugh. You know he it, we also we laugh a lot. Yeah, Rob's great. He's a good man.
0: I love that. you a really good actor. Absolutely. And, you know, last time we spoke, you know, the show was about to premiere. We, you were just starting to screen the first two episodes for people. And now here we are, more than halfway through the first season. What have the past few weeks kind of been like for you? What's it been like to, you know, you made this, you spent years of your life making this thing. And now it's out in the world and you get to share it with people.
2: Well, luckily, we really haven't had any downtime before prepping for the second season. And... Um, I don't mind the press of it. A lot of actors get a little snooty about it, but it can be grueling. Travel can be hard. Being away from home is hard, but uh, I'm proud of it. I'm excited to share it, and I'm doubly excited to get to work on the second step of the journey.
0: That makes sense. And yeah, I mean, getting to watch the show each week and see finished scenes or, or getting to see what your colleagues were doing in the Southlands or in Numenor. What's been the the most delightful surprise as you've gotten to, you know, experience the show?
2: It sounds, uh, it sounds like a negative thing, but what's been really surprising is, is how great everybody is. <laughs> Not that I didn't think they would be, but that in the seeing of the other worlds that they've created, because you have an idea and you know them and you've seen some of their work and, you visit it on set. But then when it all comes together, you feel this immense sense of pride for your friends. You go, man, Lloyd, you look gorgeous in a wig. And uh, like, like it just, it, it, you you see them shine at what they do well. And that's great. And because you're in it, you don't ever really get a truly objective viewing experience. So to see that has been the great joy. Like I was saying about o you know, I got to see it on the day, but we were sitting across the table when they push in on him and get super close when he's talking about how the stone from the table is used in tombs. And like, it's, it's just the colors are so beautiful. It, it, um, yeah. It's good to see good people do well.
0: Yeah, I imagine especially after, you know, you guys were in New Zealand for, you know, months and, and years. And to finally get to see the finished product must be pretty magical.
2: And you come away with, I come away with after seeing it, that was worth it. Like, I like particularly some of the Harfoots, you know, that I know how cold they were and how dirty they were. And there was a day when Owen and uh, Sophia were filming in their... Uh, dining room and there were all these fires so they had like black soot around their noses and at the end of it I just go it was totally worth it everything that was uncomfortable or frustrating or difficult was worth it
0: absolutely all right great well I will let you go but thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with me and I cannot wait to to see the the rest of the season we've only got uh, a few left
2: I know and we're going to get you a second one here soon
0: (laughs) can't wait all right great it was my pleasure anytime Our thanks to Benjamin Walker and our thanks to you for joining us. If you like listening to us chat about Middle-earth, you can follow the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can find us on social media. I'm at Devin Kogan and at CM Hollop. Come find us and tell us all your theories about Sauron and Gandalf and Mithril and Halbrand and Stone Tables. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for this episode of All Rings Considered. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Devin Cogan and at CM Holub.
1: This episode of All Rings Considered is hosted by Devin Kogan and Christian Holub. Produced by Devin Kogan, Christian Holub, Chanel Johnson, Sami Junio, Lauren Klein, and Dalton Ross. Edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.